Good morning, my name is Steph. I'm going to read the Bible for us today. Uh, The passage will be on the screen, but if you'd like a physical Bible, just pop your hand in the air and Peter and Ross will probably not throw you a Bible, but pass your Bible. (laughs) Otherwise, follow along on your device. We're at home. We're reading from Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 24. It's a juicy one. It's not quite R-rated, but there is some violent scenes, so cover your eyes if you get a bit scared with that. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you and I will hand him over to you. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will gladly go with you, she said. But you will receive no honour on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him. And Deborah also went with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zananim, which was near Kadesh. It was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the troops who were with him from Harasheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera all his charioteers and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber, the Kenite. 
Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. She opened a container of milk and gave him a drink and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance of the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man there? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heba's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said, Come, and I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. That day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. Thanks, Steph. Great job. Uh, I think she enjoyed that reading, actually. Uh, it was very good to listen to. Uh, again, welcome. It's great that you're here with us today. Please keep Judges 4 open as we uh, continue a tour through the Old Testament, looking at heroines of the Old Testament, these mighty women of faith. And today we get two for the price of one. There are two heroines in our story. There's Deborah and Jael. They are both heroic in their faith. These women trust God mightily in the face of powerful enemies and they bring victory and salvation for God's people. And in fact, their faith, their heroism is actually shown in an even greater light when contrasted with the man who was meant to show leadership and save Israel, Barak. Now, this is a great story that we get to read today. It reminds us of how much we can trust God's word, no matter what. We can believe God's promises It is a call for us to be wholeheartedly committed to God. And it ultimately points us to our great saviour, Jesus. So it's an awesome passage. Looking forward to spending some time in it with you. So why don't we pray once again to our great God that we hear him speak. So let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, thank you so much that you are the God who speaks. You reveal yourself to us in your word that we can know you and know your promises and know your victory. And Father, thank you so much for the women and men of the Old Testament who who show us what it means to trust you. And Father, thank you for sending us Jesus. Help us to listen now, to be transformed and strengthened by your word that we would live by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage starts with the ongoing cycle of rejection and redemption that Israel's history is full of. See, God has loved and gathered, called his people Israel. And yet, no matter how much he does for them, they keep rejecting him. They keep ignoring him. They keep worshipping other gods, keep getting in trouble. So he sends them rescuers. He sends them messengers. He sends them leaders to save them and bring them back. And then they reject him again. So verse 1 says, the sons of Israel, the Israelites, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. Notice it's not evil according to the social and cultural norms and expectations of society back then. 
It's not something that made them feel uncomfortable. It is evil in God's eyes. It is objectively evil, no matter how they felt about it. That's the measure of good and evil. How does God see it? And you see, Israel were called to be God's people. They were called to be holy. They are called to be righteous, called to stand out in the world. And instead, they do evil again and again. They follow the world. They're just like the nations around them. And God's response is strong justice. Verse 2, So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. And that's interesting, isn't it? That the Lord sold them. It's the opposite of redemption. We often hear of God redeeming Israel. Literally, it means to buy his people back, to pay the price, to bring them back and rescue them. Here, he's so offended, he's so angry at their rejection of him, of after all he's done, he's having a garage sale of useless stuff he doesn't want anymore, and Israel's there. He sells them to be under the hand of a cruel king, Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, sometimes when this happens in the Old Testament, we can feel like it sounds a bit harsh, that God would let bad things happen to his people, that God would give up his people like this, hand them over like that, deliberately put them under oppression and hardship. But imagine if he didn't. Imagine if every time Israel did evil, he said, that's fine. Whenever they did wicked things, he let them get away with it. Not only would he be denying his own holiness and justice, he'd actually be saying something far worse. He'd be doing something far worse to his people. He'd be hating them and harming them by telling them it's okay to do evil. So let me give you quick, three quick thoughts on what's going on here in verse 2 as he sells them. Firstly, in a sense, God is really just giving Israel exactly what they asked for. They want to live like the world. They want to fit in and belong to the nations around them. They want to live like there is no God and they want, they're in control and can do whatever they like. Go for it, he says. See how it works out. But it's more than God just taking a hands-off approach. Secondly, it's God's active and righteous judgment. God is holy and just. If there's anything you need to know about God, he is perfectly holy and just. The Bible says if you do the wrong thing, you will be punished justly. God gives to everyone according to what they deserve. He doesn't just leave it up to us to choose and then say, hey, I told you. He is active in judgment. But it's even more than just God being angered and offended. This moment of selling them into oppression is God's means of saving his people. This judgment, this justice actually leads to mercy and salvation you see that in what happens next because verse one israel did evil again and defied god verse two god hands israel over to sin and its consequences and as a result verse three then the israelites cried out to the lord because jabin had 900 chariots iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them 20 years israel cry out to God. Israel turns back to God as a result of what happens. And so just as in our world today, you can see clear evidence of God's judgment on a world that continues to defy him and reject him and disobey him. But this partial judgment is intended to call people back to himself for mercy, for grace in Jesus Christ. But did you notice in verse 3, Israel cry out to God 
because Jabin had harshly oppressed them and he has 900 iron chariots, but he's harshly oppressed them for 20 years. That means it took them 20 years of oppression and suffering and defeat to realize that it wasn't working. What we're doing is wrong. This is a disaster. Maybe we should go back to God. 20 years. That's stubborn, isn't it? I mean, it's like you're trying to cram that last suitcase into the boot of the car and it just won't fit. And 20 years later, you're still on the driveway slamming it, trying to get it in. It's going to go. It's going to go. Or you're trying to tighten that bolt or whatever it is. And you've got the pliers and you know you need the wrench and you should go to the shed, but you're going to do it. And 20 years later, you're still there trying. Or it's like you've done everything right and you've followed all the instructions perfectly in putting that Ikea furniture together and 20 years later you're still there trying to get it to work. But it's in this context, stubbornness, that we meet Deborah. Now Deborah, we meet her in verse 4. She's described as a prophetess, a woman who brings God's word and the wife of Lapidoth. And it says she would judge disputes under the palm tree of Deborah. And I think that's pretty convenient. She probably didn't know where to sit and pronounce judgments between Israelites, but someone had very helpfully named it the tree of Deborah. So she went there, up in the hills, and the people would go to her for wisdom to judge disputes. There's a bigger problem. We're slaves to Canaan, but she's there trying to sort out what she can. And we're told that she actually sits in between these towns of Bethel and Ramah. And remember, as you read the Old Testament, place names are never incidentally or accidentally mentioned. It's not just so that you can go to the the maps in the back of the Bible when the sermon gets boring. They actually have a meaning. You know, Bethel means the house of God. And that's the town where Abraham built an altar and sacrificed to God. It's the place where Jacob had been given a vision, the vision of the ladder, the stairway up and down from heaven. And God speaks to Jacob in that place, reiterates his promise, I will bless you, I will give you the land, I will make your people numerous. For a while, the Ark of the Covenant of God's presence was kept at Bethel. It's a pretty special place. Ramah, which means high place, it's actually the birthplace of Israel's greatest judge, Samuel, But it's the place referred to in the prophecy of Jeremiah that describes the weeping and the mourning and the crying in Israel at the death of all her children. That's the the prophecy quoted in Matthew. You know, when King Herod orders all the newborns killed, there is crying in Ramah. Basically, Deborah is under a tree in this kind of in-between place. It's a lot like Israel, in-between. Blessing of God, the punishment of God. There is in-between. But through Deborah's uh, ministry, God's word comes to a man called Barak. And he is to be the judge of Israel. He is to be the leader, the ruler, and bring victory and and peace. Look at what happens in verse 6. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites, Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry to the Wadi Kishon to fight against you and I will hand him over to you. That's a great word to hear from God, isn't it? I have a message from God. I will give you victory. I will hand your enemies over to you. I have a plan. I have a promise. You will win. It's an awesome message. But notice how it starts. Hasn't. 
the Lord God of Israel commanded you. It's possible that this is a formal way of Deborah letting Barak know this is what God's message is. But it's also possible she's actually reminding him of a message from God he's already received and has done nothing about. Has not God commanded you? Why are you here? Well, either way, it's a very clear message from God, a command of God attached to a promise of God delivered very clearly. But look at Barak's hesitation. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. See, Barak is afraid. And his response to God's word is conditional. I'll do what God says if Deborah goes with me, but if she doesn't, I'm not going to do it. I'll obey God if I can take my blankie and my teddy, but if I can't hold on to them any longer, it's not real faith, is it? It's not full, mature faith. It doesn't say, I trust God and I believe his word and I will obey his call. It actually says, I need a safety net. I need a backup plan. What if it goes wrong? Because I'm not sure. And you know what? Barak is certainly not the first or the last to respond to God like this. Remember Moses? God speaks to Moses out of the non-burning bush. He says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you to my people and you're going to rescue my people. And Moses says, I, don't, I can't do that. No, no, not me. The next chapter, Gideon will do the same thing. God speaks to him and he says, look, I'll believe you if you do a little miracle in front of me. It's conditional. It shows fear. When the right response to God's word and God's promise is always faith. As Christians, Paul says in 1 Timothy that God has actually changed us on the inside out. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. So we have Barak in his weakness, in his timidity. In contrast, look at Deborah's godly response. God has called Barak to be the leader and the judge of Israel to go into battle, to set his people free. Barak is afraid. I'll only go if you go. Look at verse 9. Her response is, I'll gladly go with you. Straight away, I'll gladly go. No hesitation, no doubt, no fear, because she knows what God has said. She knows what God has promised, that Barak will win. So yes, I'll hold your hand as you go into battle, but because Barak didn't respond with unconditional faith in God's word, she adds a rebuke. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. I will gladly go with you, but you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will, call, will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up, went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. 10,000 men followed him and Deborah also went with him. See, because... Barak didn't fully trust God and needed the woman Deborah to go with him, then the honor and the victory over the enemy general Sisera will go to a woman, she says. And that's a statement both to Canaan and a statement to Barak and Israel of the power of God's word and the way he raises up unexpected saviors. And so they head into battle. They're against an army with superior forces, with superior technology. But before they get there, we cut to this scene that seemingly unrelated about a random Gentile called Heber the Kenite. And he's related to Moses' in-laws. Now the Kenites, you might know them as the preschool and infants program on beach missions, but the Kenites in the Bible 
were the people that Moses' wife came from. And actually, as a people, as a tribe, they followed Israel into the promised land. They were blessed because they connected themselves to Israel. But in the sovereignty of God, at this particular time, Heber happens to be separated from his people and is now camped right near where the action takes place. Just a nice piece of foreshadowing of what is to come. But we're back to Barak, who eventually does what God tells him to do. Calls the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun. And as God had said, an army of 10,000 is raised. But verse 13, Sisera knows what's happening. He sees the Israelites coming and he wheels out his panzer division of iron chariots. Basically, his army is significantly larger and he has 900 battle tanks. Israel's got the equivalent of three donkeys and a knitting needle. It's not a fair fight. And again, Barak needs Deborah's urging and encouraging. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? It's exactly what happens. The victory is achieved even before the battle starts. Verse 15, the Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. See, it's interesting, isn't it? Barak has been called into active engagement in battle. He had to march. He had to fight. But his victory belongs to God. That's how God works. And it's exactly the same with us. He promises us victory over sin. He calls us to fight against the lies of the evil one and the desires of the flesh. But we have to march and we have to fight. And as we throw ourselves into this spiritual battle together, we should never forget that the victory belongs to God. God's promise of victory is not a reason to sit back and do nothing, but to actively engage. But even as we strive to grow in godliness and work at our salvation and see the church grow, it's never that we've accomplished this by our own strength. It all belongs to God. So verse 16, the Canaanites are defeated. The whole army is killed, every one of them. There's only one left, Sisera. And he's on the run. The mighty Sisera, in his mighty iron chariot, gets out and runs away. I mean, he's faced with a spineless, wimpy, scaredy-cat leader. And Sisera still loses. Because God is on Barak's side. Barak, despite his failure, has been given the victory, but the rebuke is still there for him. It's not a complete victory. Sisera was going to be placed in his hands, verse 7 had said. But instead, something unexpected happens to give Israel complete victory and defeat their great enemy. And you know, the unexpected is a bit of a theme in the book of Judges. Very often, the leader, the saviour, is a surprising one. Ehud is left-handed. So literally no one sees it coming because it's just the wrong hand. Barak is spineless. Gideon is slow to act and ends up a massive hypocrite. Samson is a party hound and Jephthah is an idiot. These guys, you would not pick them. But Judges 4 could be the most surprising of all because we find ourselves back at the tents of Heber the Kenite. It's interesting, verse 17 tells us there's actually peace between Heber and Jabin, king of the Canaanites. 
Heber is friendly with Israel and he's friendly with Canaan. He's kind of neutral in this. He's on both sides. But look at what Jael, his wife, does as Sisera approaches her tent in verse 18. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent. She covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man in here? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. I mean, no one saw that victory coming. But Jael has well and truly chosen a side, hasn't she? She has chosen a side. In fact, in this, she is a lot like Rahab that we saw last week. She chose a side. She didn't remain neutral and try to have it both ways. She knows God's power, and so she chooses God's side. Rahab changes sides and aligns herself with God. Jael stops being neutral and aligns herself with God. Because both women realize it's not enough to have heard about God or to simply think that God is a nice idea. It's not enough just to respect God as, a, as an option alongside a range of others. You are either fully, completely committed to him and have signed up to be loyal and faithful and belong to him or you're on the wrong side. J.L. chooses clearly and heroically, single-handedly, She knows this is the enemy of God's people. She could have let him just walk away and nothing would have necessarily have happened to her, but she is committed to God. She takes it into her own hands and she kills him. So when Barak turns up in verse 22, when Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him, said to him, come and I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. Barak has this complete victory basically presented to him on a platter. And the result of this, at the end of the next chapter, the next chapter is basically a song that Deborah and Barak sing a victory over at this time. But right at the end, in chapter 5, verse 21, it says, as a result, the land had peace for 40 years. Twice as much peace as they had endured suppression. Well, let me finish then with three quick points from what we've looked at today's passage. Firstly, remember how Jesus talks about faith the size of a mustard seed? Um, Barak's faith is pretty weak, isn't it? Barak's faith is pretty conditional. But God is still powerful and faithful. The victory still happens despite Barak's weakness, through Barak's weakness. In fact, in Hebrews 11, when it lists off the heroes of faith of the Old Testament, you know who's in there? Barak and it's not as if the writer of Hebrews forgot the story or got it wrong that's the whole point faith is not awesomeness faith is trust in God and you can have the weakest trust in God Jesus says faith the size of a mustard seed it's enough for salvation so it's not as if you think but I'm not a perfect Christian And I struggle and I trust God, but then I do the wrong thing. And I trust God, but then I wonder. And I kind of trust... Trusting in God 
is powerful, not because of us, but because God is powerful. So trust his promises. Don't trust your own trust. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Secondly, I think you see from this passage that God's people are better together. We need each other. And we often kind of try and do things separately or hold off against each other. But this is a shared victory. In fact, this is why chapter 5, if we had a bit more time, we'd go through it. But Deborah and Barak sing the godly equivalent of islands in the stream. It's this duet in chapter 5. They, they share a song together, a song of praise. It's not this kind of we're against each other because Deborah was right and Barak was wrong. No, they get together and sing God is great. The best bit of the song I will uh, read out and point out, and that is chapter 5, verse 24. They sing about Jael. Jael is the most blessed of women, the wife of Heba the Kenite. She is most blessed among tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him cream in a majestic bowl. She reached for a tent peg, her right hand, for a, woman's ha- a workman's hammer. Then she hammered Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed, he fell, he lay down between her feet. He collapsed, he fell between her feet. Where he collapsed, there he fell, dead. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of poetry, isn't it? Um, I could tell you what, we get the point. Sisera got the point. Um, that actually, this is kind of, yeah, no, thank you very much. Uh, and that's just sing of this great victory. And you, yep, there he is, there he's dead. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, they sing a song. But it's together. That Israel working together, God's people together are always better. Thirdly, I want to say this passage actually points us to the ultimate unexpected saviour in Jesus. Both Deborah and Jael point us to Christ. They're heroes, they're heroines of the faith. And they point us to to Christ. Deborah is confident in God's word and she's fearless to go into battle. She doesn't do the fighting, but she's happy to be there because she trusts God. Jael is confident in the one true God and is fearless to face the enemy. She does go into battle. And just like no one would have expected Jael to crush Sisera's head, well, no one thought Jesus, an ordinary man, the son of a carpenter from a very ordinary town. No one would expect Jesus to crush the head of Satan himself. That's exactly what he did on the cross. Jesus' death is the ultimate victory over Satan and sin and evil. So that means our victory truly is guaranteed because it's already won for us. Hasn't God defeated Satan, sin and death and called us to holiness? So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome story that you've caused to be written down, that we can know you. But Father, thank you for the great example of Deborah and of Jael, these women who trust you and know you and act powerfully in faith. Father, thank you for your mercy on Israel that didn't deserve it. Thank you for your mercy to Barak, who was weak and and helpless. But Father, thank you so much that we get to see in Deborah and Jael your mighty work, the work of faith that points us to Jesus, our great Savior. Thank you that in his triumph over Satan, over sin, over death, over hell, we have victory guaranteed. 
Father, help us to march and to fight together in this spiritual battle for victory that is already won for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.